All right, so when I introduced you all, um, my, introduced myself to you like a few months ago or a month ago now via the Root and Branch newsletter, um, I informed you that I'm a mama's girl. Does anyone remember reading that? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. Yeah, Virginia remembers reading it. <laughs> um, so I talk about my mom far too often, considering what is normal for any 25-year-old millennial woman living in the big bad world far away from home. I'm originally from California. And I don't just talk about my mom. I talk with my mom several times a week on the phone without fail and via Instagram Messenger. And on IG, she typically sends me information about how to be in a relationship and the proper vitamins to take. <laughs> Um, I'm pretty sure the last thing she sent me was like one of those info memes about how copper is toxic and this was to affirm my decision to have my copper IUD removed and consider alternate forms of contraception, you know, typical helicopter single mom kind of stuff and that may be TMI, but I think it's important we all know how deep this goes. <laughs> So in any case, um, most of our phone conversations weekly take on the format of complaining about the stupid people we respectively work with. No one here. No one here. Um, <laughs> and uh, she mostly complains to me, to be honest, and I try to give her the sage wisdom that I pick up here in church and in ministry class. So after we have our communal bitch fit for about 20 minutes, we begin to reminisce. So, you know, recounting old memories with my mom is one of my all-time favorite activities, generally because it results in side-splitting laughter and teary eyes, and I hope you all can relate to this with someone in your life. Um, actually, one of our favorite stories is a bit bittersweet. You see, when I was about 10 years old, my mom was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer. And by nature of my mom being a single mother, it meant that I bore witness to and supported her as she recovered um, and dealt with chemotherapy and surgery and things like that. So during this time, we didn't have much family around. My father, uh, my parents were separated, so my father would come over after work and check on me like once a week and my mom. And my grandmother was too sad and afraid to be around my mom and be a real source of strength or support. So it really was just the two of us. And once every couple of months, when we chat, she likes to remind me of the time when she began to lose her hair. And I promise this picks up. It sounds really depressing, but it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> so several weeks after dealing with the pain of shaving her head, because her hair was coming out in these like massive fluffy like reddish blonde tufts. My mom has red blonde hair. Uh, it kind of looked like cotton candy. She had a brilliant idea in the shower one day to use volumizing shampoo on her bald peach fuzzy head just to see what would happen. You know. <laughs> so once she had gotten out of the shower, my mom in her bald naked glory came, called me into the bathroom and she said, Nisabug, come in here. And leaving my bedroom, and I was probably reading Harry Potter or whatever, I, <laughs> I walked into the bathroom and she said, hey, do you notice anything different about me? 
And I was like, no, mommy, like, what's, what's going on? And she looks at me with the biggest smile and she says, look at my head. <laughs> I've used volumizing shampoo and my peach fuzz is sticking up everywhere. And my mom and I then tore into like a fit of laughter and we just couldn't control ourselves. We were laughing so hard that tears began to roll down our eyes. Um, and this is one of those instances where they say that you laugh to keep from crying, I think. Every time we remember this when we talk, we not only laugh again, but I believe the active recollection of that moment brings us into the fullness of gratitude for life and each other. Yeah, you see the messages of tragedy and suffering and thankfulness um, and gratitude can often be conflicting and evangelical spaces, specifically the ones that I grew up with in, and then the common discourse we often hear that we should be grateful for our suffering, you know, because there's a lesson in it and that God has a plan, everything happens for a reason, look on the bright side of things. Um, and I think it would be obvious of me to tell you that this is all a distortion of reality, and more importantly, these concepts are spiritually shallow and harmful, I think. But I do believe that the word has something different say, to say about this. And when I say the word, what I mean is the, the truth that comes with narratives in the Bible, those narratives that stick with us, the ones that you really carry with you. The word shares with us the depth and degree to which God shows her care. And when I contemplate God's caring for us in the circumstances that are often bleak, I return to the story of Ruth and Naomi. So if you don't remember or have never heard the story before, I'm going to give a bit of a recap um, for at least just a short portion, not the entire book, because it's a lot that's going on. So our narrative begins with devastation. There is a famine that hits Bethlehem, causing Elimelech and his wife Naomi to move to a land in the east called Moab. And they go with their sons to assure that they can eat and live and try and construct a, some, some semblance of a life. And there they stay for 10 years. And Naomi's sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And they're happily living for about 10 years or so. And then all of a sudden, one after the other, Elimelech and his sons die. Just boom, lights out, it's done for them. And they leave Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah in a state of grief, um, and also without the security of men in a patriarchal society. So these women are destitute in a way. Um, Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem to eke out an existence as a widow. She has people she knows, they might be able to take care of her there. And Ruth and Orpah decide they like to go with her. But Naomi, feeling guilty, pleads for them to stay home in Moab with their families and their own people. You see, in Moab, they'd have the opportunity to remarry and start over again. So Orpah, swayed by grief and I think realism, decides to go back to Moab. Um, but Ruth, on the other hand, says the following famous words, often associated with marriage vows. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. 
and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That's deep and heavy. So misfortune in this story is brought upon these women, and they acknowledge that they are in the full reality of grief and destitution. They are in the full reality of moms going through chemotherapy, and she has a very bald head with the slightest bit of peach fuzz. Yet, Ruth does something extremely powerful. She makes a commitment, and she creates a covenant relation with this woman. Ruth's gratitude is activated in the words of her commitment. They make the decision to remain with one another. And I think we need to rest just a little bit in the nature of this covenant commitment relationship thing going on and acknowledge some key things. First, Naomi is not Ruth's mother. They are not blood related or naturally to be committed to one another in any way, especially given the time period. They are not of the same religious or ethnic group, which is really important for understanding how loyalty traditionally functioned during this time, and I think even to a certain extent today. And so in the Jewish tradition, they call Ruth and Naomi's covenant hesed, which is loyalty and commitment that goes beyond the bounds of law or duty. Hesed then is commitment that forms out of love. Ruth and Naomi's covenant with each other is supported by love of their differences. And this is a radical act, and it's aspirational for us in our life as people often disposed to vain tribalism and extreme individualism. Sometimes, in the midst of disaster, God gives us to one another, improbably and across difference. This is something to be grateful for, church. This story um, tells me something very important about what we are to be grateful for and how we are able to activate and enact gratitude. That though there is no certainty in life, no security, so to speak, Ruth and Naomi didn't have it, and we sure as hell don't have it today with what's going on politically and with the climate and, and just our daily lives and whatever else. But God gives us someone at least one person to get through that uncertainty with. And we activate our gratitude for God's gift to us and that person or community of people through the verbalization of commitment and through the unfoldment of covenant relation. We are grateful in the living out of the gift. So when I sincerely consider what is good in my life, what God has blessed me with and what I'm grateful for, I'm very normally drawn to my relationships with friends and family. But most importantly, my relationship with my mother. And I think I'm drawn to this because we activate our gratitude and commitment every week. We remember, we reminisce, and in doing so, there is an unspoken, where you go, I will go also. So though I am drawn to a very traditional construct of a committed relationship in my life, I would like to offer you the possibility that your gratitude can be renewed and you can form commitment with those who are radically different from you. 
much like Ruth and Naomi. The preconditions to create such a relationship are simply a pre-established connection through work, school, family, church, social activities, staying together and supporting one another through tough shit. And that involves some sacrifice, right? <laughs> and I, I really also think you need to have a sense of adventure. Um, Ruth knew that what she could go back to was security, but instead she went on with her old mother-in-law, like what, to a foreign land. That's pretty adventurous and Ruth had some guts. And then I think the necessary steps you have to take to solidify such a relationship are an explicit spoken statement that you are with and for the other person. Ruth did this. Establishing trust through following through on this statement. And then reciprocity, experiencing give and take of time, emotional energy, and resources with the other person. Church, you can experience this. And that can be with the person sitting next to you, your coworker, your future child. In the case of my mother, she worked over the course of my life to form such a relationship. And it can even be with your dog or cat or bunny or bird. I don't claim to know what kind of pets y'all have, <laughs> but they count too. Um, so I think all I'm trying to say is we are remiss if we are not grateful for the gift of deep relationships in our lives. And we are remiss if we neglect to recognize that not everything sucks when you've got a ride or die. And so who are your ride or dies? Who are your beings on this planet? Remember, celebrate, love with them, it is our responsibility to remain attuned to the goodness of life with one another. And in moments of reflection and presence, we can remember that love has overcome the shittiness of the world. So go forth, name the ones you are grateful for, and name your commitment. Your life will be richer for it. <laughs>